Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. For the author of the fourth gospel, there is neither a Christless church nor a churchless Christ. Though John's gospel has been widely understood as ambivalent towards the idea of church, Dr. Andrew Byers argues that ecclesiology is as central a Johannine concern as Christology. Rather than focusing on the community behind the text, John's gospel directs attention to the vision of community prescribed within the text, which is presented as a narrative ecclesiology, by which the concept of church gradually unfolds throughout the gospel sequence. The theme of oneness functions within the script and draws on the theological language of the Shema, a centerpiece of early Jewish theology and social identity. To be one with this one God and his one shepherd involves the believer's corporate participation within the divine family. Such participation requires an ontological transformation that warrants an ecclesial identity expressed by the bold assertion found in Jesus' citation of Psalm 82, You are God's. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrew J. Byers about his new book, Ecclesiology and Theosis in the Gospel of John, in the Society for New Testament Studies monograph series. Dr. Byers is the director of the Free Church Track and lecturer in New Testament at Cranmer Hall at St. John's College at Durham University. He has served for 13 years in pastoral ministry, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., and is the author of Theomedia, The Media of God and the Digital Age, and Faith Without Illusions, Following Jesus as a Cynic Saint. His other writings have appeared in academic journals such as New Testament Studies and Novum Testamentum, and also in more popular level publications such as Christianity Today and Relevant Magazine. He blogs occasionally at hopefulrealism.com. Dr. Byers, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. It's good to be here. Yeah, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. My interest began actually when I was, uh, well, a student at university and suddenly I was arrested by uh, the preaching ministry of a, uh, uh, at the Wesley Foundation. And, and this was a bit shocking for me. I was a Baptist and I wasn't sure the Methodist I had much to offer, so it was a beginning of an ecumenical journey as well, Jonathan. But I uh, was excited about these biblical texts in a way I'd never, in, in a way that I never found excitement before. And uh, as my interest increased, I turned myself toward further studies. Most of it was devotional, but when I was in my academic classroom at uh, at Beeson Divinity School, I was all the more arrested, and that journey led me eventually into more formal academic studies and biblical texts. Wow, yeah, and 
So you demonstrate how uh, your scholarship is um, really flooded with with um, with deep insight and lots of of great textual exegetical work, and you begin this book with uh, the point that John's Christology is ecclesiastical. Could you explain why this is an important place to begin? Uh, yes, and actually, I would alter that language a. Bit. Uh, the language I use is not ecclesiastical, but ecclesiological, or the shorter version of that being ecclesial. And the reason I avoid the term ecclesiastical is because, Jonathan, as you know, it would be a term that is associated more with institutional dynamics within religious life. Ecclesiastical is a perfectly good term, but it refers to often, say, uh, procedures of ordination or means by which sacraments are administered. Ecclesiological and ecclesial are the terms I prefer when when looking at John's gospel, because ecclesiology is more of a theology of the church, a uh, theological vision of who the people of God are called to be. Now, with John's gospel, we, we come to a text that is celebrated as being Uh, Christological to its core. If you squeeze John's gospel, it bleeds Christology. And uh, John, in comparison with the synoptics, of course, is viewed as uh, the, the, the book with the highest Christology. Now, that is debatable, and I do think John has a very sophisticated and high Christology. I think the synoptics have a high Christology as well. But I think that John's Christology has drawn so much attention that ecclesiology has actually been eclipsed as a major theme. It may well be that in our comparative, in this comparative field of gospel studies, we tend to uh, we tend to accentuate the differences between the gospels, and John's Christology becomes the. Uh, the heavily accented feature of his text. Marianne May Thompson talks about Christocentricity. <clears throat> that is a focus on Christology to the extent that other major Johannine themes are overlooked. I've written this book with the conviction that ecclesiology is just as significant as Christology for John. These two ideas, who Jesus is and who the people of God are called to be around him, are interfused. They are inseparable. There is no churchless Christ nor Christless church because John cannot envision the two otherwise. So, uh, yeah, ecclesiology. I want to argue that this is a central feature of John's gospel that is often overlooked. Great. Right, exactly. So then in taking that, um, that kind of foundation, you then go on in chapter two to demonstrate that God is unity and plurality, or you, the term dyadic. How does this affect your argument? What what does you know? How does that relate to uh, the two becomings that we see in the prologue of Jesus becoming man and man becoming children? I was teaching last week, Jonathan, a class on John's Gospel, and I put up on my uh, keynote presentation, I put up these these four clauses that open John's gospel. And 
what I wanted to highlight is this alternation between unity and plurality in the prologue's vision of who God is. So he opens, of course, with in the beginning, and you expect God. If you're a Jewish reader, and I believe John is written, is produced out of a Jewish context and primarily envisions a Jewish Christian readership. If that is your context, then you, when you hear the phrase in the beginning, you are anticipating theos. But John says in the beginning was the logos. This seems to be an equating of logos to theos. Maybe a bit controversial, but not entirely. But then in the very next clause, you have this one was in the beginning with God. So there is this distinction. There is a difference between these two that we at first may think are equal to one another. And then in the very next clause, and the word uh, was, was God, again, that seems to be an equating. And then again, you have that following phrase, he was in the beginning with God. So there is this unity and then plurality, two figures that seem to be equated, but they can't quite be equated because once he equates them, he must also separate them. Two divine figures and thus dyadic theology, uh, which I, I say at the, in the closing chapter becomes triadic in the way that the spirit is, the spirit paraclete becomes coordinated with these other two. But the reason, to go to your question, the reason dyadic theology is important for the idea of ecclesiology is because right in the beginning, John wants to present to us a vision of divinity that is open, that is at least to some degree open and inclusive and even invitational. We have these two divine figures, Lagos, Theos, and those are very abstract ideas or concepts or entities within a Greco-Roman and even within an early Jewish uh, context. You know, which theos are we talking about here, right? Well, over the course of the prologue, John does makes a literary move that I call disambiguation. We begin with a very abstract idea of theos, and then, of course, logos. And over the course of the prologue, different terminology begins to be used in which these ideas, theos and logos, gain greater specificity. In fact, by the end of the prologue, what we have are Theos, who is Father, and Jesus Christ, who is the monogenes, the unique and only Son. These are family terms. But what John also does in his prologue is he ties together with the disambiguation of the Logos and the Theos, human beings. If you trace through all the references to human beings within the prologue, you go from a sort of, uh, uh, well, the broadest possible categories would be all and anthro, uh, you have anthropos, this, this collective term. By the end of it, you have God, who is Father, the Lagos, who is Jesus, the monogenes, the unique and only Son, and then the children of God. The prologue is not just a Christological text. It is an ecclesiological text because it presents to us 
a dyadic theology, two divine entities that are intimately related, but yet still separate in some way. And somehow they create space in which uh, a family relationship develops, in, in which human beings participate in some way within and interrelation. And it's in the, expressed in the terminology of family. This is where John begins his rich and highly suggestive idea of ecclesiology as a new family formed as divine beings uh, within and placed within this interrelation of father and son. Great, exactly. And so as John is unfolding this ecclesiology, um, you then kind of turn in the narrative as John does to John the Baptist and you show that he stands as the ideal new community member. And you argue that a new community is formed by a new confession. Could you just walk us through how you see a new community arising from John's prologue? I'll begin with your reference to John the Baptist. It's, it's interesting. We, if, if you follow through this pattern that I'm arguing is present in the prologue, the pattern of disambiguation that occurs with theos, logos, and with, uh, uh, with, in the area of anthropology that yields eventually to ecclesiology, the very opposite takes place with John the Baptist. We are presented with uh, someone who is very, well, there's not much ambiguity attending his introduction. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We get his name. We know who he was sent from. We know this is a man. We know his purpose. He came as a witness. He came to testify to the light. Now, he's not the light, let's be clear, John says, but he came to testify to the light. We know who this figure is. There's no ambiguity. But yet, over the course of the next few chapters, he becomes more of an ambiguous figure. So, so this, this opposite process occurs of ambiguation. I think what John is doing here is he is interlacing the testimony of the Old Testament prophetic tradition. He, he's interlacing that into what's happening anew with the uh, entry of the Lagos into the world. And so we have this gradual unfolding recognition of who Jesus the Lagos is, who becomes flesh and enters into the sphere of the cosmos, the world. But John the Baptist, his voice is loud and clear, testifying to who this is, uh, providing an Old Testament prophetic justification of the authenticity and the legitimacy of his ministry. But then we don't know where to place the quotation marks that end John's voice. Now, if you look in your English Bibles, they've managed, the translators have, uh, they've managed to come up with some place to put those quotation marks, but <laughs> Greek does not provide the convenience of quotation marks. These are decisions that we've had to make reading the Greek text. But actually, it's hard to know where John's voice actually ends. His voice tends to bleed into the voice of the we, the narrator and the narrator's uh, community or group or network. And this happens uh, not just in the prologue. It happens again in chapter 3. Uh, we, we also see John the Baptist pointing people away from himself to Jesus. We'll get to that in just a moment. 
But in chapter three, it's it's hard to know where John the Baptist stops speaking and the narrator resumes. And it's actually following the script for John. John himself, the Baptist says, uh, he, as in Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. So what I think what I think the fourth evangelist here is doing, he is taking that prophetic voice of the Old Testament embodied in John the Baptist, and he is crafting in a literary way uh, what Christian orthodoxy would profess to be true about Jesus based on these texts, and that is that uh, there is a Christological understanding of Israel's scriptures that John highlights, and then that voice fades into the voice of the community being formed around the Christ, who is Jesus, the Lagos. Now, community, you'd asked about the formation of community. When Jesus, the log, when the Lagos enters into the cosmos, and we see him then presented as Jesus, uh, the man who is uh, God the Son, a crisis occurs. He enters into the sphere of the world made through his agency, and a division is erupted. A, a, uh, a division is erected between uh, or within the sphere of humankind. Most reject him, but some receive him. So this community is formed. The prologue speaks of this. Those who receive him, they become children of God. They are given the right, the authority, the power to become children of God. And we see that when Jesus arrives on the scene in the narrative proper, and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God, uh, a community begins forming around Jesus. And there are no chapter divisions, of course, in the original Greek when John was writing. But the way that the placement of the chapters, the chapter numbers works, it's quite savvy. I think it works very well because what we see in chapter one is the formation of a new community around Jesus as one by one, he encounters those who become his disciples. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. That, that is a very helpful explanation. And I think um, a very enlightening section of this work and it provides then the, the foundation for turning to the old Testament backgrounds of the Shema and then the prophet Ezekiel and you, you weave these together in a really fascinating way to explain John's use of, of the term one, or especially his conception of that idea. How do you think the author of John um, uses both the Shema and the prophet Ezekiel in his idea of oneness? Yeah, this is a part of the book that uh, I'm really excited to talk about. This this idea of, of oneness in John, and some would call it unity, I prefer to go with the actual language of oneness. I think unity confuses what John is doing here. Unity is implied, as I'll speak of in a moment, but, but oneness, I think, is the better term. And many writers have produced some highly sophisticated, very impressive studies, actually, on oneness envisioning that oneness is deriving from a more mystical, perhaps Gnostic uh, background. That's not what John is doing. John's oneness motif is grounded explicitly in two sets of texts. At least that's what I'm arguing. 
Jonathan. I, I, I think the Shema is in view, and I think these uh, chapters from Ezekiel you mentioned are also in view. Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37. So when John introduces us to the idea of oneness, it's not John 17. It's much earlier. We think of this prayer of Jesus in John 17, the prayer that they may be one as we are one. We think of this prayer, and we, we've held this as the, uh, the, the heart prayer of the ecumenical movement. Now, I'm sitting here as a Baptist in an Anglican theological context. <laughs> I love the ecumenical movement. Uh, I, I learned preaching from Methodists and uh, was trained at a non-denominational seminary within a Baptist-affiliated university. I, I love John 17, and I love this idea of oneness, but it doesn't mean... Let's all get along. I also don't think it means, hey, this must be a, this Johannine community must be fractious and schismatic. Clearly, the fourth evangelist is addressing some sort of internal schism. That's why Jesus prays for oneness. When Jesus prays that prayer, when Jesus prays that they may be one as we are one, we readers, we hearers of John's gospel, we have been conditioned to know what that oneness implies. To, to, we, we've been conditioned to understand one through a range of Old Testament texts and, and ideas that begin back as early as John chapter 8. That's where oneness first appears in a uh, thematic way for John. And we have a phrase uh, where the Jews speak of having one father, one Father, the God, okay? And the language of one in a Jewish context, when it's applied to God, it's hard to escape the Shema as its background. Deuteronomy 6.4 reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So John introduces the Shema within this conversation with the Jews, and it makes perfectly good sense that uh, the Jews, who are Jesus' conversation partners, are thinking of Deuteronomy 6.4 when they bring, bring this up. Well, the next time when this occurs, it's in John chapter 10, and you have reference to one flock, one shepherd. John chapter 10 in that shepherd discourse, it's drawing on Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37. In these prophetic oracles, the prophet is concerned with uh, the, the dispersed and scattered state of, of the people of God. They exist as separate nations, and they have been exiled and scattered about as sheep. And God says, I will raise up one shepherd, and they will be one people, one nation. John is drawing on the shepherd imagery of Ezekiel 34 and 37 when he talks about Jesus as the good shepherd. Jesus is that one Davidic Messiah figure who will come, who will be the means by which God will exercise his beneficent reign over a unified, a united people. But unity, though that is implied there in Ezekiel 34 and 37, it's more than that. This is a dispersed people being uh, discussed in Ezekiel 34 and 37. And John draws on that. He, John understands this idea of 
of dispersal. And when he speaks of one flock, one shepherd, he's not just thinking of people who all get along and are unified in that sense. He's thinking about people scattered about who belong to God, who will now be networked, interlinked together under Jesus as the Davidic shepherd. Well, that's John 10, 16, this, this phrase, one flock, one shepherd. So first John has referred to the oneness, has grounded the oneness motif in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Then he goes to Ezekiel 34, 37. The next time he uses the oneness motif, he goes back to Deuteronomy 6, 4. But he links it to Ezekiel 34 and 37. And this is in 1030 when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. It is standard in the commentaries to find interpretations where this essentially means that Jesus and the Father are aligned together in will, aligned together in purpose and mission. Uh, <clears throat> but actually, I think something more profound is happening. The, the Jews take up stones. They take up stones because in their hearing, Jesus is just blasphemed. And I think, once again, this is a reference to the Shema. Jesus is including himself within the divine category of, uh, of the Shema, of God as one. But, of course, he's just been shown to us as the one shepherd from Ezekiel 34 37. Well, back in Ezekiel 34 and 37, uh, though God says he will appoint one Davidic king, he also says, I, I myself, ego a me in the Septuagint. I will be their shepherd. So I think John fuses the idea of the Christological, the messianic shepherd with the divine shepherd so that Jesus can say on solid exegetical grounds, I and the Father are one. So we've gone from Deuteronomy 6.4 to Ezekiel 34 and 37, back to Deuteronomy 6.4, brought in Ezekiel 34 and 37. The next time one appears is in chapter 11. And this time it's definitely Ezekiel 34 and 37. This is a reference to uh, one man having to die in order to gather into one, the dispersed children of God. It's very much part of the language of Ezekiel. And the next time we have one, is, it's in John 17. And this is when John fuses together the connotations of Christology, ecclesiology, and theology in both sets of his oneness texts, the Shema and the oracles of Ezekiel 34 and 37. And when he prays that they may be one as we are one, a number of ideas are coming together here. One is that the Shema has this associative power in early Judaism. And you even sit a bit uh, in, in the Old Testament, but there's this associative power in which the one God of the Shema uh, can be correlated to, or to him may be correlated, a one group of people. Uh, we see this in Philo. We see this in Josephus. I, I think what we have here is uh, a, a, a context in which Jewish Christians uh, potentially delegitimated out of their tradition on the basis of their Christ belief we have here John saying, no, you are truly the one people of this one God, the one God of Israel, under the authority, the reign of the one Davidic king who is Christ. This fusion of Deuteronomy 6 and Ezekiel 34 and 37 is underway in that prayer. 
So there is an associative force underway with the oneness motif. And, and lastly, I would say that there is also a participatory idea going on as well. It's striking language. If you, if you, if you hear oneness is tied to the Shema, and then you hear that human beings are being included within that, something really dramatic must be underway. And I think it's suggestive of something that we may call in later, later centuries theosis or deification. But in a highly qualified sense, let me add. Excellent. Yeah. And I, I love that. I think um, those backgrounds are incredibly enlightening um, to especially show how the Shema has power to create community and that it's also participatory. So then let's keep following down that track of participation and turn, as you do in your book, to theosis or deification. Um, you show that the early church father's definition of theosis seems parallel to John's. So I think it'd be helpful to um, just ask, you know, how so? How do you think that they are parallel? And then how would you describe John's theosis? The, the language of theosis, it is just inescapably difficult. It's hard to offer a gloss that is satisfactory for theosis. Theosis or deification, I use those terms interchangeably. Uh, this gets a lot of people into, into trouble, and it's risky language to use. I, I referred last week, I referred to my class last week on John, and I, I threw some of these ideas out there. There's quite a bit of debate in the room as to, the, as to the, just how comfortable we might be with this language. And, and what I shared with them, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the book, Jonathan, but I, I think what's going on with theosis language in the early church is that it's risky language. It's risky to use language that might uh, blur the horizon between creator and created in a Judeo-Christian context. But there's another risk. And this is a risk that some of those early patristic writers were unwilling to make. And that's the risk that Christian believers would miss the radical, extraordinary, wondrous nature of who they now are in Christ. The, these early writers, when you, when you follow through with, with what Athanasius may be saying or, or Irenaeus, uh, some Cyril of Alexandria, uh, often scholars look to those early patristic texts and they find quite a bit of Pauline language, and, and it's true. But I think it's also Johannine. So one of the arguments I'm trying to make is that if we're going to talk about theosis, and we're going to do that in biblical studies, we need to bring John into the conversation. Because many of them seem to be talking about theosis while reading John, not just Paul, not just Peter, the, the Petrine letters. And theosis, well, well, there's a whole range of ways theosis gets worked out, depending on which, uh, which theologian you're reading. And that goes from uh, the earliest centuries of the church to contemporary theology, of course. And I certainly don't claim to be an expert in all the var varieties of theosis there are out there. But one thing that you find is that there are these dramatic statements something along the lines of, uh, you know, he made us gods. But then there's quite a bit of qualification that these writers have to provide. 
I think John does something very similar. And when you read John, what we later call theosis, I think it actually, that language is appropriate language to use so as not to miss the striking nature of what John says about who the children of God are. So over to this Johannine idea of theosis. What does that look like? In, the, in, in my book, I speak of a number of ways that John expresses what later theologians would be comfortable calling deification. Now, early on in the prologue, we immediately see that those who are identified as children of God are born ek theu. That's Greek for out of God, born from God. And we are explicitly told where they're not from. They're not born out of blood or out of the will of the flesh or out of the will of a husband. These are, these are children born ek theu, out of God. The language here demonstrates that those who receive the logos, those who receive uh, Jesus, they are resourced. They are reoriginated in some way. And they are reoriginated uh, out of God or from above, another parallel phrase that gets used. This is taken up a bit later in John chapter 3 when Jesus says to Nicodemus, of course, you must be born. Nicodemus hears again, which is not entirely wrong. <laughs> but what Jesus means is from above, which is what that Greek word can also mean. It can mean again. Anothing can mean from above. <laughs> Jesus is reaffirming what we find in the prologue, that those who believe in him are regenerated in some dramatic and strong way. Now, another way that John, well, this idea of birth is tied to the idea of family. Filiation. Filiation is just a, uh, it, it, it's, it's a nice, precise word to express this, or it's a succinct word to say, but expresses family relationships and family dynamics, this idea of being a child to uh, a parent. And filiation becomes one of the primary means that uh, the early patristic writers talked about theosis, and it is a way that John presents this idea of being divine. I said earlier about uh, John bringing believers into the divine interrelation of the Father and the monogamous. Uh, we are born out of God, and therefore, new beings, Paul might use the language of new creation, right? Uh, John says we are born from above, and that places us within this family circle. So filiation is one of the images by which theosis or deification language is expressed. And I also talk very briefly about this, uh, this text, Psalm 82.6. It's a very strange text in many respects. Uh, but Jesus refers to this text. Uh, it's a place where in Scripture, in the Psalms, there is an address to a group of, uh, of entities that are called gods, gods in the plural. And there's a range of ideas, a range of ways by which this can be read and interpreted, probably envisioned in Psalm 82, uh, would be the divine council, these divine beings of the heavenly court, but it could also be judges. It could also began to be referred to in some circles uh, as, as human beings, Adam and Eve, as the original human beings who in some way fall. 
But those who receive the logos of God are understood as gods, as divine. And of course, in John, it's those who receive the logos who are born from above. But when John presents these ideas, when he presents these ideas of us being uh, divine in some way and part of this family, he, he doesn't just throw it out there. He, pre- he gives a number of he limbs, uh, a number of ways by which this might be understood throughout the narrative. So John, he's writing a narrative. His theosis is narrative in form and presentation. And so what we see are a number of uh, characters who participate in what seems to be divine speech, divine function, uh, even in some way as divine self-designation. So a couple of examples of this would be uh, Jesus, his death is being referred to on a number of occasions, and then later that same idea, or the exact same language used to express Jesus' death is used to uh, articulate the death that Peter will soon join in, as the new good shepherd, Jesus appoints him to that role. Jesus holds office as this divine shepherd, and Peter will enter into that role. You see Jesus in the bosom of the Father. The Greek is kolpos. That's in one eighteen. Jesus is in the kolpos, the bosom of the Father. And then in John thirteen twenty three, we see the beloved disciple in the bosom, the kolpos of Jesus. This is... This is John uh, presenting through his characters this idea of participation. And then one of the most dramatic scenes of this is when the ego a me, the I am language, I am being a self-designation of the divine identity in John. Always it's Jesus using that, except in one scene, the man born blind says ego a me. Now, what's interesting about John's portrayal of, or his suggestive uh, presentation of theosis deification is that he will also give qualifications just like the later patristic writers will. So, whereas we are referred to as children of God born from above, only Jesus is referred to as the Son, the monogamous. There is a uniqueness that Jesus holds that we don't attain to. And though he may present the man born blind uh, saying, ego a me, very striking language. The man born blind is also the only person in the gospel to bow down and actually worship Jesus. So those boundaries that uh, the boundaries between divinity and humanity do get a bit blurred. But yet there are still boundaries and John limbs those out throughout the course of his narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that is such a helpful way to describe um, and to, I think, convictionally talk about that is it is bad to miss our identity as believers, that we are one with God. And yeah, I would just encourage readers to to eat up this section and digest it. And it will it will provide, I think, a lot of help and clarification. So then uh, just as as our last question, um, how do you think theosis is brought about in John's gospel? And, and does it play a key role in his narrative objectives? Right. Theosis and deification, 
actually are extra narrative uh, events for the most part. Now, we do see this happening a bit within the text, and I've talked about those scenes. We have this idea in the prologue of those who receive the Logos. They are uh, born of God. Later on, Jesus speaks of those receiving the Logos, or refers to a psalm in which those who receive the Logos can be called gods. We see in those characters, that some of which I've mentioned, we see them uh, uh, doing do, do, they are reciprocating certain things that Jesus does or uh, participating in certain events and activities and speech that we see on the lips of, of Jesus as uh, a divine representative of the Father. But, of course, in John's narrative, he has to operate with, with narrative time. And so the prologue, which sort of exists outside the time frame of the narrative proper, we see this idea of being of becoming children of God, perhaps being enacted at the end when the resurrected Christ blows into. He, he, it had to have been an awkward scene, Jonathan, right? If someone just breathes on you, this is a bit awkward. But of course, what's happening here is a scene parallel to what God does in Genesis 2-7 when he breathes into the dust that becomes Adam. So this resurrected Christ in John's gospel is breathing into his new disciples, into his disciples uh, as an enactment of new creation. He's bringing about a new humanity and that breathing in this, this, this is the spirit being brought into the lives of those who believe in Jesus. And of course, filiation occurs. Uh, he, he says, he says to Mary Magdalene, uh, go to my brothers. Okay, so this idea of filiation being uh, solidified now through the resurrection of Jesus. But the activity of the Spirit is largely presented to us as activity that lies beyond the narrative. Uh, there's this curious phrase in John chapter 7 where in the Greek, uh, in the Greek it actually is the Spirit was not yet, all right, because Christ had not yet been glorified. But Jesus speaks quite a bit of the paraclete, especially in the farewell discourse. He speaks of the Father and of himself sending the Spirit to us. And that sending of the Spirit happens there in John chapter 20. And readers of this gospel uh, leave with an understanding that the Spirit, the Spirit paraclete, the comforter, uh, does some work in us. We receive the Spirit, and in some way, that actualizes this filiation, this, de this deification. This, enable, th this reception of the Spirit enables us to live out within this divine interrelation of Father and Son. Excellent. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to summarize. And yeah, I so appreciate all your insights, all the, the work you've done in this book, and I think it's an incredibly helpful work. Well, Dr. Byers, before we wrap up, would you just want to share with our audience what you're working on next? Thanks for asking, Jonathan. I am working on two books I'm co-editing with colleagues. One is on the oneness motif in the ancient world and in Christian origins, and another is on gospel reception in the early church. And the book, the book I'm currently working on right at this moment is a book called John and the Others. 
And the idea here, I, I, I'm, I'm wanting to challenge what I call the sectarian hermeneutic, uh, the, this, this lens that now shapes how we in, uh, in the Academy of Biblical Studies, how we approach the Jehannine literature. And uh, I want to challenge the sectarian hermeneutic and demonstrate how John is actually interested in the other. He doesn't just want to other. Uh, this idea of uh, the, 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 the father and the son and their interrelation, this is an inclusive interrelation, one that is open and invitational toward the other. And we see the ultimate other in John's gospel, the ultimate other, the logos, becoming flesh. This is an act of de-othering. So I, I want to present, I want to challenge what we find is uh, contemporary trends in John's gospel to read it as an insular, uh, uh, inward-looking, sectarian text that's sort of mean towards the Jews and mean towards other Christians uh, in the mainstream of the developments in early Christianity. So yeah, uh, John and the others. I'm, I'm getting close, getting close to finishing it. Excellent. Well... We will be excited to, to read those when they come out. Um, so for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in to this, um, this edition of New Books and Biblical Studies. Go pick up Ecclesiology and Theosis in the Gospel of John. Um, anyone who's interested in Johannine studies will love this work. And I think it's a, a very helpful addition to scholarship. And until next time, take up and read.